Bert Montoya didn't say much. In fact, it seemed he preferred talking to trees. And with his unkept appearance and his shabby clothes, he was very often labeled as a bum. The irony in all this is that Bert didn't really drink. He could be seen shuffling along the streets of Sacramento, California, mumbling to himself. On the occasions that he did speak, it was usually in Spanish, but he did speak some English, if not very little. Bert spent his nights sleeping in a large shed in Front Street, which has been allocated to the VOA, Volunteers of America, to be used to house and care for other homeless men who, unlike Bert, were mostly drunken drifters. So one volunteer aid worker, Judy Moise, was particularly taken by Bert's gentle spirit and realized that since he didn't have a dependency on alcohol or drugs, she could probably find him some alternative accommodations somewhere that he could be looked after. It took Judy about a year to track down Bert's official identification and his social security number so that he could start collecting his benefit checks that he was entitled to. With Bert's identity established and his benefits in place, the next challenge was for Judy to find a suitable place for him to live, somewhere where his eccentricities would be tolerated and his needs would be met. The problem was solved when one of the other counselors suggested a boarding house on F Street that was run by a kindly widow who was experienced in the care of homeless and was adept at dealing with the vagrancies and the destitute and the homeless. So on February 1st, 1988, Judy and a friend arrived at 1426 F Street, a blue and white two-story Victorian house. An elderly woman with white hair and no teeth who introduced herself as Dorothea Puente met them at the door. After inviting them inside, the woman quickly apologized for her appearance, explaining that she had ordered new genitors and they weren't quite ready. To Judy, she seemed pleasant enough and appeared to run a clean and orderly home. After a tour of the dwelling, Puente offered them coffee and they raised the subject of Bert. Puente was more than happy to accept him and told the woman that she was more than capable of ministering to his particular needs, as she was also Hispanic, having originally come from Mexico. Two days later, on February 3rd, 1988, Bert moved into his new home. Within weeks, Bert's general condition and his demeanor improved markedly. His hair was washed and combed, his nails were clean, his clothes were spotless. Under Puente's supervision, he began to take better care of himself and even resumed taking his antipsychotic medication, which made him more lucid, and he was able to converse in whole sentences rather than his usual grunts and moans. To Judy, Dorothea Puente seemed to have a heart of gold. Not only had she accepted Bert into her house and cared for him, she had provided him with her own out-of-pocket expenses for weeks until his social security payments had come through. Dorothea often went out, and on occasions, she took Bert with her, so no one was surprised when on Thursday, March 31st of 1988, she got him dressed and took him downtown. Their destination was the Social Security Administration building. After waiting her turn, she patiently explained to a staff member that she was there on behalf of Mr. Montoya, who was mentally retarded and as such was incapable of handling his own finances and wished her to be made the payee for his benefits. Accepting the request to be quite reasonable, the staff members gave her the form to fill out on which she listed herself as Bert's cousin. 
Bert's mental disability was later confirmed by his psychiatrist as being a psychosis, which makes him non-participative in society and withdrawn, needing someone to watch out for him. Before long, Puente's application was approved and she became the recipient of $637 of Bert Montoya's benefits each month, more than enough to take good care of him. Back at Volunteers of America, Judy Moyes was beginning to get very worried about Bert. Bert was a diagnosed schizophrenic, and as a result of his mental illness, he was on the streets for a while. So when Judy had met Dorothea Puente, she was very excited and relieved and thankful when Puente had agreed to take Montoya in. But now it was October. And Judy Moyes hadn't heard from Bert Montoya in weeks. When Judy asked about his whereabouts, Dorothea Puente at first claimed that he had left to go to Mexico, but that he'd return. This did not seem likely to Moyes, who kept hounding Puente. Puente then claimed that Montoya had returned, but then he left with a relative and moved to Utah. After that, an unknown man called Judy Moyes, claiming that Montoya was with him. Finally, on November 7th, 1988, Judy Moyes was done with all the evasion. She went to the police and made a missing persons report on Montoya. What Judy didn't know is that by placing Bert in the care of Dorothea Puente at the house at 1426 F Street, she was sending him to his death. This is Murder V Wrote, and I'm your host, V. Dorothea Puente was born on January 9, 1929, as Dorothea Helen Gray in Redlands, California, to Trudy Mae Yates and Jesse James Gray. Her parents were cotton pickers who were abusive and, frankly, didn't really care for her very much. She was neglected and very often had to fend for herself just to eat. They barely scraped by. Her father died of tuberculosis when she was eight years old. And then her mother died in a motorcycle accident just a year later. So Dorothea was sent to an orphanage until finally relatives in Fresno, California, agreed to take her in. As people would find out later in life, Dorothea Puente would lie about a great many things, not including her upbringing. And so she would say that she was one of 18 children who were all born and raised in Mexico, which we obviously know is not the case. But. This is what she would tell people. So in 1945, she was married for the first time at the age of 16 to a soldier named Fred McFall, who had just returned from the Pacific Theater of World War II. Dorothea had two daughters between 1946 and 48, but she sent one to live with relatives in Sacramento and gave the other one up for adoption. She became pregnant again in 1948, but suffered a miscarriage. And then in 1948, uh, Fred McCall just up and left her. Humiliated at being abandoned, Dorothea would lie about this marriage and claim that her husband died of a heart attack within days of them getting married. She would then go on to try to forge checks to survive, but essentially she was caught and then sentenced to a year in jail. She was paroled after about six months, and soon after she was released, she was impregnated by a man that she barely even knew and gave birth to another daughter who she also gave up for adoption. So at this point, we're on 
kid number three, and Dorothea is not raising any of them. In 1952, she married a man named Axel Johansson, and they had what could only be described as a very turbulent marriage that lasted about 14 years, roughly. Her husband really didn't make an effort to take care of her. Uh, he didn't make an effort to make sure that her needs are being met, that she had a home, that type of thing. He really, they just fought a lot, it seems. They fought and yelled, but they just were living in poverty and really didn't have enough money to make ends meet. So in 1960, Dorothea goes into uh, sex work. Uh, basically, she opens and is managing a brothel when she is arrested, and she's sentenced to 90 days in the Sacramento County Jail. After she's released this time, she's arrested again, this time for vagrancy, and she's sentenced to another 90 days in jail. Following that, she began a criminal career that over time became more serious. So obviously, after you've been to jail multiple times and you can't find really any other way to make money, what happens very usually is that you have a high rate of recidivism. So to kind of discuss that. Recidivism basically is when you look at the rates or rather recidivism means that once you have gone to jail for some type of crime, whether it be big or small, you then go back to jail or prison after that for some other crime, maybe related to the other one or maybe not. So what we find is that for people who do not have a lot of other options or any type of support or a safety net very often if they are able to get out of jail they turn back to their old tricks because they don't have any other ways to make money or anyone to assist them and making sure they stay on the straight and narrow and don't fall back into their old habits and criminal career in Dorothea Puente's case, when she gets out of jail, she finds work as a nurse's aide caring for disabled and elderly people in private homes. And in short order after that, she begins managing boarding houses. And in Puente's own words, when she's interviewed in jail, she says it, to her, it seems that this is probably one of the things that kept her from going back to jail after the vagrancy arrest and her getting out. Because she was able to kind of straighten up her life and make a little money outside of her abusive husband and get away from him and kind of do better for herself, which essentially is really what statistics have shown enables ex-prisoners to get out and do well um, in their quest to rejoin society. So Puente marries for a third time after she divorces Axel Johansson in 1966. She marries a man named Roberto Puente, which is where she gets her last name from. And he was 19 years her junior, and she met him in Mexico City. The marriage only lasted about two years. And shortly after it ended, uh, Dorothea is back in Sacramento doing the same thing, working uh, and managing boarding houses. Puente gets married for a fourth time in 1976 to Pedro Montalvo, who was a violent alcoholic. This marriage only lasted a few months and Puente started to spend time in local bars looking for older men who were receiving benefits. She would forge their signatures to steal their money and eventually she was caught and charged with 34 counts of treasury fraud. I did not know that it was possible 
to get jailed on that many counts of anything, but I guess it's possible. She stole a lot of checks. Um, so the scammers of today, just watch out because I think Dorothea Puente has you guys beat. She was definitely out here taking these old men fast for their social security checks. So while on probation from her 34 counts of treasury fraud, she continues to commit the same fraud. Um, she's doing the same thing. And frankly, no one stops her. So according to California Court of Appeal records, in about 1981, Puente begins renting an upstairs apartment at 1426 F Street in downtown Sacramento. And this is where things get interesting. Going forward, we are going to talk about some things about Dorothea Puente, but I wanted to take this moment to have a discussion into some psychology. Uh, so Dorothea Puente is known as the is known as a serial killer. And what we very often find is that it's unique in that most women are not serial killers. Um, most serial killers are predominantly men. And more often than not, what we don't find is that little old ladies are killers. So obviously it's a popularly held belief that all serial killer are men, and it's not true, but as late as 1998, a former FBI profiler said there are no female serial killers. And the news and the entertainment media perpetuate these stereotypes that serial offenders are all men, and then women don't engage in horrible acts of violence and murder. And I think we see that very often when we talk about cases in which women um, do unspeakable crimes or murder. And it's just, well, look at her. I just, nobody would think that she would do this thing. And I think we still have a very widely held belief as a society that women are not capable of doing the grisly, horrible acts that we very often think of when we think of women being murderers or criminals or what we think about when we think of criminals. Obviously, female serial killers do exist. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here talking about Dorothea Puente. But their motivations differ significantly from their male counterparts. And that's where I'd like to focus today. In particular, sex is generally much further down the list of motivations for female serial killers. What you will find is that most male serial killers have sexual or sadistic motives for their kills. And that is extremely rare among female serial killers. What we normally see are psychopathic traits in histories of childhood abuse that are often found with serial killers that are female and have sexual or sadistic motives. Without those two things being linked, then very generally that, that's not the case. Um, serial, male serial killers are frequently driven by some form of sexual lust, whereas female serial killers tend to take a much more pragmatic approach to their killings. They are more likely than males to kill for profit or revenge. And so they are more likely to fall into the category of hedonistic comfort or gain killers than any other type. So basically what that means is that women are not killing to get some type of sexual thriller release. Very often the motive is, is some type of money gain or revenge for some slight or wrong that they feel like has been committed against them. Additionally, male serial killers often target unknown victims, whereas females tend to kill men who are emotionally and physically closest to them. 
So this normally means they're husbands or lovers, and they are generally killing to improve their lifestyle. This is why when we watch uh, shows on Oxygen like Snap or like on the ID channel, uh, women who kill or that type of thing, what we see is uh, a lot of these women are killing for financial gain, right? It's because they have found another lover and they want to get rid of their husband or they want to get rid of their husband for insurance money. So very often, again, it, it is to improve some part of their life or what they see is they're killing to generally improve their lifestyle. However, victims of female serial killers are not confined to male husbands or lovers. Um, what we also see is that female serial killers will very often kill the children, will kill children or the elderly. So the news has also given us a popularized the female idea, the cultural image of the Black Widow. The Black Widow can be described as a serial killer who is a woman who murders three or more husbands or lovers for financial or material gain over the course of her criminal career. The Black Widow killer, or this idea or trope, was featured in the 1944 classic dark comedy film Arsenic and Old Lace, which stars Cary Grant. Uh, if you have not seen it, it actually is a really good movie, um, but it basically tells a fictional tale about two sisters who mer who basically are murdering elderly gentlemen by serving them elderberry wine that they have laced with arsenic. So, although women comprise less than 15% of all serial killers, I'm sorry, 15, not 50, they are very effective in their work and typically use quieter and less messy methods to kill their male counterparts. The method they use for murders are very more, very often more covert and low profile, which is why you see a lot of female serial killers who kill with poison, which is the preferred choice or the modus operandi of female serial killers. Other methods that were identified in studies show that female serial killers do shooting, stabbing, suffocation, and drowning. So obviously they're not immune or not using the other methods that men use, but overwhelmingly poison is the go-to among female serial killers. Female comfort or gain killers are frequently involved in theft or fraud or embezzlement prior to becoming serial killers due to their interest in material things, which is exactly what we see with Dorothea Puente, right? She, all of the crimes that she's been committed of, or been, all the crimes she's been committed and found guilty of have involved some type of theft or fraud committed by stealing money from other men. So what happens is normally they escalate from this theft or fraud and embezzlement to murder. So most female serial killers murder for money or for profit, and some do it for attention and the sympathy they receive following the death of someone they cared for. So you see a bit of, I wouldn't say Munchausen syndrome by proxy, but in some ways, yes. Um, it's about that feeling of sympathy that they get because somebody they care for is sick. It's not uncommon for female comfort or gang killers to be employed as caretakers in nursing homes for the elderly or to be pediatric nurses because you get a lot of sympathy when you're dealing with vulnerable populations and something happens to this. And we see that when we talk about uh, some other famous cases, which I won't go into now, but certainly cases where there have been 
kind of nurses that do that, that are quote unquote angels of death or are using a cocktail of drugs to send patients into cardiac arrest or that type of thing. So they're able to resuscitate them and be considered a hero or garner sympathy because their patient has passed away. Female serial killers generally operate in a specific place that they know well. Uh, normally that means that they're in their home or like a healthcare facility where they're employed. They rarely go outside of that geographical area or go trolling for victims in the open like male serial killers do. They normally find their victims through work or through family. In our case, Dorothea Puente, she had a Sacramento boarding house and she was robbing and murdering the guests that live there, right? These people were coming to her and she was using her guys as being able to take on the toughest boarding cases to murder them. Occasionally you'll see a female serial killer that becomes with a male serial killer as part of a killing team. Um, some of this means that the female will be more submissive and help select victims in order to please her dominant male partner. Uh, something like this is would be, I guess, uh, who would be a good example? Sorry about the uh, but I'm thinking, I would say maybe Gerald and Charlene Gallego or uh, a more popular case from Canada, not popular, but a more no, well-known case from Canada would be Paul, um, Paul and Carla Homoka, who kidnapped and murdered girls in Canada. A notable exception to these typical characteristics about female care about female serial killers is the notorious highway sex worker Eileen Warnos, because I figured we should probably cover that at some point. She killed outdoors instead of in her home, and she used a gun instead of poison, and she would kill strangers, and she killed certainly for personal gratification and vengeance, but What is believed is that the, the general consensus is that Eileen Warlos, Warnos killed, quote unquote, like a man. The lack of public awareness to female serial killers prior to Eileen Warnos was due to kind of a virtual absence of female serial killers in news into the media. So until Warnos, there was really no discussion in the media or in popular culture about female serial killers. So again, up until, you know, as, as, Late as 1998, even FBI profilers who do this as a living were like, no, there's no such thing. And it was all because we live in a paternalistic society and they have that notion that women can't commit these type of gruesome and violent crimes. And so the thought was, is that Eileen Warnos didn't kill, quote unquote, demurely as societal norms dictate that a woman would. So again, I just kind of wanted to give us some background into kind of the psyche of female serial killers. Dorothy Puente definitely falls into that comfort or gain killing. She was employed as a CNA. She definitely had the background of theft and fraud and embezzlement. And unfortunately for these people that we're about to talk about now, that certainly escalated into murder when she realized that she could kill these people off and continue to collect their social security benefits or any checks that they have. So Dorothea Puente obviously gets arrested for when she does this to Malcolm McKenzie. And she is convicted of convicted of three charges of theft on August 18th in 1982. And she is sentenced to five years in jail. 
while she's in jail, she begins corresponding with a 77-year-old retiree living in Oregon named Everson Gilmouth. So they develop a pen pal friendship and Everson is telling everyone that will listen that he is just in love with Dorothea and he is smitten and that they are going to be together and they are making all of these plans. And so when Puente is released from jail in 1985, after only serving three years of her five-year sentence, he is waiting for her at the gates, arms wide open, in his red 1984 pickup. Their relationship escalated very quickly after this, and they're soon making wedding plans. Everson is completely in love with Dorothea and obviously is asking about a dress and a venue and a cake. And Dorothea is asking him to open a joint bank account. So they do this and he is paying the $600 a month rent for upstairs apartment at 1426 F street in Sacramento. And they move in together. That is in 1985. And after Everson moves into the apartment with, with Dorothea, no one hears from him after that. So in November of 1985, Quinte hires a handyman, Ismael Flores, to install some wood paneling in her apartment. For his labor and an additional $800, Quinte gave him a red 1984 pickup in good condition, which she stated belonged to her boyfriend in Los Angeles who no longer needed it. She also asked Flores to build a box that was six feet by three feet by two feet so that she could store books and other items. She then asked Flores to transport the filled and nailed shut box to a storage depot. Flores agrees to help her take it to the storage depot. And along the way, Puente tells him to stop while they're on the Garden Highway in Sutter County and dumped the box on the riverbank in an official household dumping site. Puente told him that the contents of the box were just drunk, just junk. Okay, so I will just say, if somebody pays me to make a box, and then they nail it shut and tell me that it's full of books and knickknacks, and then when I'm taking, then ask me to take it to a storage facility, and then they decide along the way, oh, never mind, just dump it over the side of this bridge into this, like, river dump. Wouldn't you be a little suspicious? I mean, maybe that's just me because I'm paranoid and suspicious of everything, but in my mind, I'm thinking, if I paid somebody good money to build the box to store the things, why would I then take the box that they just built for me and fill it with my things and throw it over the bridge? If it was stuff you didn't want, why wouldn't you just put it in garbage bags and throw it in the dump behind your house? But I guess, you know, if somebody offered me $800 and a Ford pickup truck that was in good condition, maybe I would overlook the obvious. I'm, I'm kidding. Probably not. But it, this guy did, apparently. So on January 1st of 1986, a fisherman spotted the box sitting about three feet from the bank of the river, and he informed police. Inside the box, investigators found a badly decomposed and unidentifiable body of an elderly man inside. Puente continued to collect Everson Gilmouth's pension, and she wrote, wrote letters to his family, explaining that the reason that he had not contacted them that was because he was ill. So she maintained a room and board business, taking in 40 new tenants, and Gilmouth's body remained unidentified for 
three years. Puente continued to accept elderly tenants, and she was really popular with local social workers because she accepted the quote-unquote tough cases, and this included drug addicts and abusive tenants. What she would do is collect the tenants' monthly mail before they saw it, and then she would cash their checks, pay them a stipend, a very small stipend, and then she would pocket the rest for expenses. During this period, her parole agents went and visited Puente, who had been ordered to stay away from the elderly and refrain from handling government checks a minimum of 15 times at this residence, and no violations were ever noted. So, to me, this seems that our system is broken. And I don't mean that to say that, obviously, every parole officer doesn't do their job, but if a person comes out to your place on 15 separate occasions and you have 40 people living there and all of them are elderly or sick or have mental illnesses, how are you able to continue to keep housing these people without being in violation of your parole? I, I, I'm very confused as to how she was able to make this ruse work. Was she shuffling them all out of the back door? Or every time he showed up, she said she was having a party with 40 of her closest friends? I'm not sure I, I quite follow how she was able to evade any type of punishment for violating her parole. But again, this was the 80s. I guess things were very different. I do not know, but, um, well, there it is. So in the following months, more, dis more, you know, mysterious disappearances were reported. I will say this about Puente's uh, 40 new tenants. Most of these people were drunks and drug addicts, so it was very easy for her to take advantage of them. And basically, she was, I mean, earning a good living. Some reports estimate up to $5,000 a month off of these people's, like, Social Security and pension checks, which can't be that much. And she was squandering it on her lavish lifestyle, $100 bottles of perfume and other things she was just blowing it on. And then she would pocket all of these people's benefit money, but she didn't really have anything to show for it. So she kept having to go out and look for new clients, we'll say, but people that she was going to rip off, essentially. So as the months passed, people keep disappearing. On August 19th, Betty Palmer, a 77-year-old resident of Puente's boarding house, never returned from a doctor's appointment. Several weeks later, Puente was in possession of an ID with Betty's name, but it bore her own picture on it, and she used this to collect Betty's benefits. In February of the next year, another tenant, Leona Carpenter, was discharged from the hospital and placed in Puente's care as well. She was 78 years old. Puente made her bed on the couch as a temporary measure, but two weeks later she went missing and was never heard from again. James Gallup was 62 and was last seen in July of 1987 when he was treated by his doctor after months in a hospital following an operation to remove a brain tumor. He told the doctor that he was moving into a boarding house at 1426 F Street. The following October, 62-year-old Vera Martin moved into the boarding house and was never seen again. And finally, Bert Montoya arrived the following February, and soon after Puente took charge of his affairs, he too disappeared. When other tenants asked about where he had went, they were told, as she had told 
Judy Moyes, and as she will tell the authorities, that he had left for Mexico to visit his family and that he was staying with family in Utah and that he wouldn't be back. So finally, after Judy Moyes files her police report on November 7th, the police take her, her complaint into account and they go to the house to question Puente and look around. When the police knock on the door, Puente answers it and she's gracious. She allows them in. She offers them coffee. She answers their questions. When they ask her about Mr. Montoya or Bert, she realized and repeated what she had told Judy Moyes that a relative had shown up and taken him away to live in Utah. The other residents who were all elderly or disabled or struggling with substance abuse corroborated Puente's story. As the officer stepped outside, however, one of the residents, John Sharp, secretly slipped him a note that said, she's making me lie for her. The note also asked the officers to meet with him privately away from Puente. When Sharp met with the officers, he told them of strange things going on in the boarding house. He told them of another resident who had gone missing after Puente had gone to his room to, quote, make him feel better. Soon after, a foul stench had permeated the house, which Puente blamed on the sewer. Then there were the mysterious holes that kept appearing in the yard. Sharp said Puente frequently hired prisoners and drifters to dig holes in the backyard and that some of the holes were now covered in concrete. Sharp also said that the night Montoya went missing, he heard a large thump and the sound of something being dragged across the floor. So the police at this point are really, really concerned about what's going on. And so essentially they are like, okay, this is a little weird. So the police then also search the house. And what they find is a large unmarked vial filled with blue pills and another one that is empty and it has the name on it that says Dorothy Miller. So the police ask her about it, and she claims that Miller was a relative who had recently visited and that she must have thrown the bottle away while she was there. The police officers, after hearing from the border and finding this empty pill bottle, asked if they could search the yard. And at first, Puente delays and says that, you know, they don't need to and that she could hire a handyman to do the digging for them. But the officers had provide, had come prepared with their own shovels, so Puente allowed them to go ahead with the search. She even lent them one of her shovels as an extra. Which at this point, I'm thinking, what is her end game? Because how do you get out of murdering all these people and then allowing them to search the premises and then also giving them a shovel to help them with their digging? But there's more to the story. The backyard of 1426 F Street was like 10 by 40. It's not huge, but when you're digging it up by hand, certainly it takes a while. So the officers are like, you know what? Let's get down to business. And Puente sits on her balcony above and watches them. And it doesn't take long for Officer Jim Wilson to hit something in the shovel, hit something in the dirt with the shovel that Puente left, had lent him. He found a human leg bone and then an entire foot still inside of a shoe. And while those remains were yet to be identified, they appeared to be those of an elderly woman. And the state of decomp indicated that she had probably been dead for many months. So these could not be the remains of Montoya, a large man who'd only been gone a few weeks. When the officers told Puente what they had found, she seemed shocked and confused, as anyone would be. She claimed that she had no idea there had been a dead body in her backyard this whole time. 
And truth be told, it wasn't uncommon for the houses as old as this one on F Street to have remains buried in the yard. Uh, so this would be common for any houses that kind of have that historical marker or things that were built in, in the early 20th century. Because back then, what would happen is families who were too poor to afford a cemetery plot would often bury their family members in their yards. And this is before you had to have, you know, coffins and you're required to embalm people. So there are probably quite a few historically built houses that may have bones or burial sites in the backyard. So Officer John Cabrera questioned Puente very extensively about the, the leg and the shoe and the foot, and she stuck to her story. She didn't know anything about it. She had no idea what they were talking about, and Bert Montoya had simply packed up and left to go live with relatives in Utah. The next day, it begins to rain, and the officers, now aided by forensic anthropologists and a crew of city utility workers, continued to dig around in the muck looking for Montoya. News crews at this point have arrived, as did crowds of neighbors and people who worked in the nearby capital. Fuente approaches Officer Cabrera while he's digging, and she says that all of this commotion about the dead body was very distressing to her, and that she needed to get away and have a cup of coffee to calm her nerves. Since Dorothea wasn't under arrest, technically, the officers were still operating under her consent to search. It was agreed that she could go. So Cabrera escorted, escorted her, along with one of her boarders, John McCauley, out of her yard and through the throngs of media and onlookers. And he watched her walk towards a nearby hotel to get her a cup of coffee, and then they returned to digging. Within minutes, his shovel struck yet another human body. This one was much newer, wrapped in many layers of blankets and plastic bags. Now, the police finally had the cause to arrest Puente. But when they rushed to the hotel where she was supposedly having coffee, she was gone. Over the next four days, crews uncovered the remains of five more people in the tiny yard around 1426 F Street. One person, a woman, was buried in the front yard without her head, her hands, or her feet. The press covered the evacuations and the local response to it extensively. They gave the property nicknames like the House of Death, the Yard of Death, the Death Garden, and the Graveyard on F Street. They began referring to Puente as the Death House Landlady. Once the police and crews had uncovered all seven bodies, the next problem was identifying them. They were all too decomposed to be fingerprinted, and bizarrely, they were missing most of all of their teeth. Which this lines up because Dorothea Puente's neighbors, oddly enough, complained that the stench from her yard was so bad that even in, you know, the stifling heat of summer, they would just not turn on their fans and AC because the smell would permeate their homes. And the whole time they thought it was the sewer. Another neighbor also had reported that he was in his backyard and there was just sets of random human teeth thrown into his backyard. But he never once suspected that Dorothea Puente was killing her boarders, pulling their teeth out and then throwing the police, throwing the teeth over the, you know, the adjoining fence between their yards as if she was like throwing over acorns. And I don't think that I would have thought that either, but I think I might've reported a full set of human teeth in my backyard. But again, that's just me. 
So other than Montoya, Puente's border, borders, who had been forgotten about or neglected by society, there were no missing persons reports. Burton was the only person that anyone had filed any type of report about. But the police digging into Puente's background and seeing that she had past convictions for stealing elderly victims' social security checks, as well as the fact of knowing that most of her borders drew at least some form of benefits, the police did something very smart. They reached out to the Social Security Administration, who provided them with a list of people that were receiving benefits at that address. So then they spoke to the neighbors. And again, the things I told you about is what they were reporting. So they began to work through their clues and they were able to identify the remains of the people in Puente's yard. And one of them, sadly, was Bert Montoya. Uh, little did they know that they had not uncovered all of Puente's victims. They had not been able to find Dorothea Puente since she had walked out of the house for that cup of coffee. So she went over to the hotel and once inside the hotel, her purse was secretly stuffed with thousands of dollars. She headed straight for a payphone and called a cab. She and her boarder Macaulay went to the bar for a drink, and she would later say they then went their separate ways. Macaulay stayed in Sacramento, and Puente fled to Los Angeles. Which, I guess, lucky for John Macaulay, she didn't try to take him for all he's worth, but I figure at this point she knew she couldn't murder anybody else and get away with it, so... The Sacramento police was roundly criticized for allowing a convicted felon on parole with a body in her backyard to just walk away. And frankly, when you put it that way and don't look at her as like a little old lady, it that absolutely makes sense. I don't know that there's anyone else who could be on parole for a felony and have them dig up a body in their backyard and they'd be allowed to leave the scene. Um so I think that sweet little old lady act that she was pulling definitely fooled the cops. But I will say that the police at that point said that they felt like they didn't have any real reason to detain her because he allowed them to search the premises and they were there of her volition. They didn't have a warrant or anything. So nothing in her reaction led them to believe that it was less than genuine. They felt like she did not know about the body and was concerned as they were and was shaken by it. So she was certainly able to fool them. Um, at one point, an anonymous tipster said that Puente had flown to Las Vegas. And while people were skeptical, the police worked with the Las Vegas PD to try and find her there to no avail. So for four days, the sweet old lady evaded police, but apparently... She couldn't help but go back to her old ways. This is four days removed and in the middle of a manhunt for this woman after she's killed seven people. She is at the bar near an airport and she chats up a man named Charles Wilgus. She seems really interested in Social Security and Wilgus would later tell the police and the media um, that she told him of various ways he could get more benefits. So she met a man at a ho at an airplane, uh, an airport bar, and basically told him ways that he could scam the government to get more Social Security money. Um, so Wilgus apparently was very turned on by Miss Fuente's scammer ways, and they left the bar together and went to her hotel room. Thankfully, <laughs> um. Wilgus is uh, spared and she doesn't do anything to him, which is really, really nice. He's here to tell us what happened. Um, so what we find out is that 
Puente introduces herself to him as Donna Johansson. And during this conversation, Donna, you know, tells him that her shoe heels were worn down from walking around town. And Wilgus takes him to a repair shop across from the bar and has them repaired for her. They talk about his financial situation. They, you know, are having drinks. Um, Dorothea suggests that they get together and have Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, this man, for some reason, thought that that was very, very appealing. But he then began to feel uncomfortable when she suggested that they move in together. They talked for hours until Charles Wilgus was finally able to excuse himself with the promise of taking her shopping the next day. He returned to his apartment, was, but was unable to relax as something continually gnawed at his brain. Now, for me, the thing that would have gnawed at my brain is if a man that I did not know and had two drinks with in a bar tried to spend Thanksgiving with me, and then when I was like, oh, that's nice, we could maybe share some fried turkey, he immediately escalated that to us moving in together. I would be very, very put off by all of that. And I would then probably think that he was trying to murder me. So it always, again, maybe I'm just paranoid. But why do these people never think that anyone is trying to murder them? Like, I know it's a, a typically not rare, but random occurrence. Like, it occurs enough to be a, a at least a slight concern, you would think. But again, maybe that's just me. So while he's trying to figure out the thing that's gnawing away at his brain, he switches on the television, and that's when he realized that Donna, the woman that he had seen on the television this morning, was also the woman who was one in suspicion of multiple murders in Sacramento. So reluctant to give the police a call, he called CBS News Service instead and spoke to the assignment editor, Gene Silver. Silver was a veteran newsman, listened patiently to Wilgus' story before he suggested that he watch a news broadcast to see if the woman he met was actually Puente. Charles did so, but was no wiser as the broadcast failed to show any photos. Smelling a breaking story, Silver then suggested he bring over a news photo of Puente so that Charles could be sure. Sometime later, Charles sat staring at the image that Silver had supplied, but was still unsure. Eventually, aided by Silver's gentle prodding, Charles agreed that the woman he met in the bar could very well be Dorothea Puente. Armed with his newfound knowledge, Silver then returned to his office, summoned a camera crew, and rang the police. With everything in place, the police, accompanied by Silver and his news crew, arrived at the Royal Viking Hotel at 10.20 p.m. and knocked on the door of room 31. Puente answered the door momentarily blinded by the glare of the TV camera lights and was promptly asked for some form of identification. With nowhere to run, Puente took her driver's license from her handbag and handed it to detectives. If there was any doubt as to her identity, it was quickly dissolved when the police read the name on the license. Dorothea Montalvo, the address, 1426 F Street, Sacramento. Dorothea Puente was taken into custody and taken back to Sacramento, California. Her trial lasted an entire year. The prosecutors called roughly 130 witnesses, but because of the condition of the bodies, the evidence was mostly circumstantial. 
most of the people that Dorothea had murdered had various drugs in their system because most of them were addicts. But what they all had in common was a sedative called Balmain. And it's a drug that is mixed with alcohol, that when it's mixed with alcohol can be lethal. It was also shown that Fuente had obtained more than three dozen prescriptions for Dalmain between October of 1985 and November of 1988. But it couldn't be proven that Fuente had administered the drug considering the deceased's various addictions, physical problems, and mental illnesses. So basically what they're saying is that the defense could argue that although she did have these prescriptions, they were in a boarding house where she was boarding people who had all manner of illnesses and demons and drug problems who could very well have gained access to the pills and had been stealing her pills, taking them themselves. In the end, the jury deliberated for 43 days, the longest amount of time in California history, before declaring her guilty on two counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder. The other counts ended in mistrial due to one juror. She was sentenced to two life terms plus 25 years to life without the possibility possibility of parole in the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla. While her case is sad and horrifying and gruesome, it did serve a positive purpose in the end. It shone a light on the deplorable conditions in which many licensed care homes, the media in which they followed this case, found that many elderly and disabled people in California were living in deplorable conditions of filth and neglect. The public thereby demanded more oversight on these homes, and the state responded by tightening regulations and punishing these homes that were running without a license. So I guess you could say that, that is the one thing that came out of it. Um, I will say that I'm glad to hear that because very often we talk about, you know, domestic partner abuse. We talk about child abuse and there are laws on the book. But what we don't talk about is often is elder abuse and the ways in which the elderly are abused and taken advantage of by those who are meant to care for them. And very often that happens when they are put into homes where they're cared for, whether it's abuse by staff, whether it's some type of financial abuse where they have relatives or caretakers taking money from them and not spending the money on their proper care, uh, with holding medications from them, beating them, um, not changing them or, or their clothes or making sure that they're bathed and fed if they require that type of care. So I'm really glad that they were able to respond to such a horrible tragedy in a way that makes something like this for all intents and purposes not possible to happen again. Quinte um, was said to be a model prisoner. <coughs> she often cooked for the other prisoners and the guards. Uh, they said they really loved her tamales. In 2004, she released a cookbook titled Cooking with a Serial Killer. Uh, it had about four and a half stars on Amazon, uh, with most reviewers saying that the recipes were pretty basic, but tasty, I guess, if you are into that kind of thing. So I will move on to something that's a little bit more speculative. Um, the question is always asked, does or did Dorothea Puente have an accomplice? And the reason people think that maybe someone was helping her is that it really kind of bugs 
investigators and others because it wouldn't seem possible for a woman of Fuente's age and small stature, uh, she's 5'3", she's my height, to drag these bodies, some of whom were quite large. In, in Bert Montoya's case, he was at least six foot tall, a very, you know, large statuesque man out to the yard by herself. And then they said that there were mysterious phone calls to, for instance, Judy Moyes by some man claiming to be Montoya's relative and then to the police to give them false leads that sent them on a wild goose chase to Las Vegas. So with those bits, surely in, investigators were like, there has to be somebody else that was helping her. So there are a couple of theories on that. One theory is that there was a homeless man named Chief who was her accomplice. Neighbors say that Puente had adopted him as her personal handyman and that they said they had seen Puente have Chief dig up the basement and cart the soil and trash away in a wheelbarrow. Then he covered the basement floor with a concrete slab. Then they said later he tore down a garage in the backyard and poured fresh concrete slab out there as well. And soon after, he disappeared. And since no one knew his real name or where he might be living, it's been impossible to track him down. The other prevailing theory is that Puente's border John McCauley was her accomplice. So if you remember, John is the guy who, when Dorothea came out and asked to go across the street for a cup of coffee, he was the border that she took with her. He was actually arrested as an accessory uh, to the murders, but then he was released due to lack of evidence. So it's hard to say if, you know, an elderly lady who is slight and small and frail was able to pull off something like this by herself. In my personal opinion, I don't think that it's possible, but I also think that when you are, you know, rolling stuff up in blankets or carpet and you have boarders who are mentally ill or high and strung out on drugs, you can really get them to do anything because they're not in their coherent, lucid mind, right? They're not thinking lucidly. So if you're offering them drugs or alcohol or they're not on their medication or they don't really talk or whatever the issue may be, you're able to exploit these people. And I think that she was able to do that. And some of them probably did help her drag these bodies to the backyard or dump them into the hole because they don't, they didn't know any better. Not to say that they have any proof of this, but it's the thing that makes the most logical sense because otherwise, how was she able to drag these bodies from an upstairs apartment down the stairs and out to her backyard and then dig holes to bury them in? Someone had to help her. But the truth is something that died with Dorothea Puente. Uh, she died on March 27th, 2011 in prison, and she never admitted once to killing any of these people, and she never named an accomplice. So that is today's story. Uh, Dorothea Puente, she's the first female serial killer that we've covered on Murder Be Wrote. And if you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, things you think I got wrong, things I could have talked about more, you're welcome to discuss them with me. Again, I love your feedback. Um, I'm trying to think if I have anything. Uh, we're coming into Thanksgiving. Uh, so I will put this episode will come out right before Thanksgiving um, and I will see you guys the next week after. I apologize for the gap in shows, but uh, <laughs> life gets in the way sometimes. So I'm glad to be back with you guys.
what else is there? I don't think I have anything else that's major that I need to discuss. Um, I wanted to talk to you guys about something. Uh, so if you are up to it and interested in listening to another podcast, I wanted to spotlight one that I had been listening to recently. And this is a friend of mine, Kia, and she has a podcast that is very, very different from this one. Um, it is called Ropes and Handcuffs Podcast. Um, they talk about all the interesting things that come along with sex, love, and of course, ropes and handcuffs. Uh, <laughs> so you can go check her out over there. That is available anywhere that you find great hot or any place that you find and listen to amazing podcasts. Um, her IG is ropes underscore and underscore cuffs. The website for the podcast is ropesandcuffspod.com. Um, if you're on Twitter like I can, you can follow the show there. The show's Twitter is at R and H pod. That's R A N D H pod. You can find her there. So if you're looking for some palate cleansing listening that is completely different from our little murder show, then that is definitely something I could suggest. So, so shouts out to Kia. I see you doing your thing. I really have enjoyed the episodes I've listened to. So keep up the good work and hopefully you guys will enjoy her show as well. And if you talk to her or tweet her, tell her that Murder V Rope Pod sent you. And well, you know, V sent you. <laughs> um, I don't think I have anything else. That is it for me. Um, as always, you can follow the show on Twitter. Um, if you'd like to follow me there or tweet to me, the show's Twitter is going to be at Murder V Pod. You can also follow us on Instagram at Murder V Pod. Um, I'm going to try and post a little bit more. I know I don't post unless there's a show, but I do love interacting with you guys. So I'll try to get more involved. We'll try to talk more about interesting cases, interesting theories, because um, I love to hear from you guys. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Nope, that is really it. Again, questions, comments, concerns, you can always tweet me. You can always hit me up on IG. I listen to all of those things. If you are able, please leave the, st please leave the show a five-star review. Whether you love us or hate us, we love to hear from you. Um, and it helps us uh, continue to put out the show. So with that being said, that is all I have for you today. I'm glad you were here with me and we were able to discuss the case of Dorothea Puente, the death house landlady. Um, and I look forward to seeing you guys again next week, right here, same time, same place. My name is V, and this has been Murder V Rope.